I know that we are a target for nation states. We're definitely a target for criminals, but to have a zero day to be used against us was kind of eye-opening for myself as well as for the leadership. And working through an incident like that where the potential for shutting the port down could have been there, the potential for having to do disclosures, breach disclosures was all there. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with previous guest and podcast host himself, Chris Wolski, CISO at the Port of Houston. Chris and I talk about what it was like in the months leading up to his new position, what tips he has for unemployed CISOs preparing for a new role, and making it through his first zero-day attack. Finding a new job as a CISO can be tough. No one understands that better than Chris. What were some of the tools he leveraged to get him into his new position? And what steps did he take after becoming the new CISO at the Port of Houston that helped him manage the internal mechanics of a major incident? Chris, you are a returning guest. Some of you listeners will know who I'm about to announce, but Chris Walski is back again. For those that don't know who you are, Chris, do us the honor of uh, letting us know who you are and where you work. My name's Chris Walski. I'm the uh, Chief Information Security Officer for the Port of Houston. The last time I was here, I was unemployed and um, ended up landing a sweet gig in Houston, Texas. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's part of what we're cover. There's kind of a, a couple chapters to this, I think, that we'll get into. So you, you have been a guest before. It was actually a fantastic show because it it went through something that if it hasn't happened to us, we've probably all thought about where the conditions that you sort of mentioned is you believed in that position that things were going well until they weren't until, you know, you had someone in your office on a Friday saying, hey, you know, this isn't working well. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I think that makes we're going to go through here that much sweeter. And it's a, it's evident that there's been growth and reflection since then, for sure, from my perspective. Chris, how long have you been now with Port of Houston? Since uh, first week of March last year, the week before everything shut down. Okay. So the position with Port of Houston took a little bit of work to get into. I think like any job would, but this one I think was a little unique. You were unemployed, looking for a CISO position. What was the duration from the time that you started to find what you thought were good opportunities to the time that you got hired? Well, I mean, basically it was almost nine months from the time that I was let go to the time that I started back working again. So, you know, the, the whole interview process and, you know, the spreadsheet of tracking all the interviews and everything else was and a couple hundred lines long. So a lot of work. I think that that is important for all of us to reflect on where you had, you know, hundreds of opportunities, things into which you, you applied or at least sought additional information. And the, the window of unemployment being nine months, I think there's a lot of people out there, maybe they're not CISOs, maybe they haven't had to go through this, but don't realize that it takes that long. Yeah, it does. 
especially, you know, if you're just the, admittedly, I'm not a rock star. And um, so I don't have, you know, the, all the lights and the name that comes with uh, rock stars typically generate, especially even within information security. If you're well known and you have, you know, you're a real well sought after thought leader, information security realm may not take as long to get a new position. But when you're a guy, it's just getting it done or a gal, it's just getting it done. It may take longer. I think humility is certainly comes through in your statements, but I, I think it's also dangerous when we undervalue ourselves a little bit. I, I, I do think it's now that you mention it, bringing up sort of this rock star persona that we have sometimes in security, it does exist. Some of the rock stars, I think, can be actual rock stars. And there's many others who sort of pretend that they are and sometimes still get a halo effect of telling everyone they're an expert enough and then everyone will believe them. I think there are some that might not take nine months, but I, I know many people who have applied for great positions and to make it through the C-suite and get an interview taken care of and get negotiations done and all the rest can take many months. And I think that for the purposes of this show, you know, you've always been super open and honest and just, you know, sharing that I think is really valuable because there's, there's not a lot of places to go get this information unless you just have to do it yourself. Right. And so this is, I appreciate, I really appreciate you sharing this. And while I think it's, I want to go back to the rock star thing. There's a lot of rock stars, Chris, that I know that spend their time out getting awards and having a spotlight on them while members of their team are the ones actually doing the work back home. And so the, even though that might look cool to be a, a, you know, be fancy and be the rock star, you know, that's kind of the Hollywood CISO is what I refer that as. And so I guess I just bring that up for, for the listener. And I guess for you as well, that, you know, sometimes being in the, in the spotlight is, is not all of what it seems, you know, we, we need people to go out there and, and get the job done. One of the things I, I think I want to bring up too, I don't glad hand on this topic. When we met just a week or so ago, just the conversation we had, you sounded better. Uh, now, obviously having a job versus not having a job is, will make you sound better, make you feel better. I think the confidence that you had and the clarity of your message had vastly improved. And one of the reasons I think is the new job and some of what you've got to work on. How does that strike you? It's very true. Um, I, I do think that I do feel better, even though it's still getting, you know, probably getting less sleep now than when I didn't have a job. But, you know, it's, it, it's when you have a focus, a mission, and you get to build something that you get to call your, your own or you're leaving, you're leaving a legacy, it definitely, it gives you kind of that desire to, you know, want to keep going and to push forward and do something good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I want to go back a bit to your interviewing after you began to zero in on Port of Houston. Now you didn't have any maritime or didn't have any, any, didn't have much maritime experience in terms of the vertical related to what is the Port of Houston and, and the, the sort of the, the specific risks and the business of how much experience did you have there? I had a little bit, but you know, a lot of it was based on my days being in the Navy and you know, a little bit at a previous employer where I was a leading their information security program. And they had like one, one pier on, in, uh, on the Chesapeake Bay. 
So I didn't have all of the large pieces of experience needed to help the number six sized port in the United States, you know, keep, you know, cargo moving and containers moving and import and export. So there's a lot to learn there. It's orders of magnitude larger than what you had experience with, but it's something that didn't keep you from applying and pursuing the opportunity, which again, I think is for the listener, for maybe the more junior person or maybe the more senior, I think it's important to press on. And and how did you press on? How did you get familiar in this process to learn enough so you could go in and have some level of confidence in the interview process? I was fortunate. I had contacts that uh, I had made. You know, one of the things that we as information security leaders tend to do is we tend to socialize. You know, we have the different events and we gather together to talk about whatever, being a CISO, what it means to be a CISO, et cetera. Well, fortunately, I had one contact that was a CISO for the Port of San Diego. I got to know real well. I had another contact for, it was the CISO of Port Long Beach and, you know, expanded my network out to include other cybersecurity professionals or information security professionals um, within the maritime industry. And LinkedIn helped out a lot and being able to just set up a time with them, ask them, Hey, you know, if I was, you know, in working for you, what would you expect from me or, you know, your organization? What kind of experiences you know, are you seeing with regards to information security? How is it applied in the ports? You know, I learned a lot. You know, one of the things I didn't really have much information about was Maritime Transportation Security Act. So I did a lot of research there. So basically, I did my homework, reached out, talked to people, and researched um, everything that was related to maritime security. So you effectively interviewed, in a way, the CISOs at San Diego and Long Beach, meaning not interviewed like you're interviewing for a job, but you're interviewing them kind of about their their career and their uh, expectations and what their daily life is like. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's pretty much it. it was, I mean, it's, it's sitting there getting an understanding of what, what they see on a daily basis as far as like uh, threats and the handling of the day-to-day business that, um, you know, expected of CISOs to be able to sit there and keep the port commissions happy and keeping the regulators happy, all the, that goes into a good program. And I would imagine this was happening uh, in a time where there's extra stress on everyone. So getting their time might have even have been taking, you know, taking some more persuasion because there's cargo that's sitting out in the port that hasn't been you know, we're in the in the in the harbor that hasn't been unloaded, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic, and so this is so you had to really persuade them. Maybe they they may have just been great folks, and, I, and you mentioned them, and they, it sounds like you've become friends. So I applaud them for helping you. That says good things about our community. But I, I just think that that's making connections in the vertical. I think is an important thing, and I'm glad to hear you did it. That it went well. Is there anything else that anything you picked up in that process that would be? Uh, a curiosity or a tip? I know you kept pretty detailed records of, of your interviewing process. Anything else you'd recommend to those doing something similar? Really, it's it's about doing your homework. You know, I applied for jobs and everything from finance to manufacturing to now, you know, here in the maritime industry, doing the uh, homework so that when you have that 
first interview with the actual person that's doing the hiring. That way you, you sound knowledgeable. You have the background and understanding of the industry and the vertical it goes a long ways. And I can't stress that enough that when you're in a leadership position, coming in cold and not having any knowledge, it's going to be an upstream battle the entire time. So you know, get ahead of the game. Well, yeah, and I think it's a way also to, you can sort of acknowledge your weakness in a way in the interview process. They may say, Chris, you don't have hardly any experience in this. Like, why would you make a good CISO? And you say, you know what? That's an accurate statement. However, I have spent my time researching these acts, reaching out to uh, peers in industry, actually interviewing them and, and aligning. I mean, I think you can begin to make a pretty compelling argument for yourself. Now, that still may not be good enough. There might be somebody who comes in with a ton of experience over the top of you. But it's sort of the best fight you can make. Definitely, exactly. You know, it's like you said at the beginning, it's about coming in. It's a humble humble slice of pie and um, you, acknowledging your weak areas and how you're trying to improve to make them a strength. So, Chris, back to the Port of Houston, were you the first CISO or security leader there? Yes, I am. I was actually the first cybersecurity hire the port has had prior to my arrival. I mean, it wasn't that port cybersecurity wasn't doing any going on at the port of Houston. It was collateral duty for somebody within IT or a couple of people within IT. So it's not that it wasn't being done. It just wasn't focused. And now it's got somebody to focus on it. So this is both a good thing and a bit of a curse when you're the first one through the door. Because in many cases, you are introducing these concepts to people that have never had to think about this stuff much before, right? There's a dedicated framework now, and there's a figurehead, there's a, a centerhead of an officer that's in charge. That really starts in the interview process. I mean, so did you, were you, while you were getting educated up on maritime, maritime industry and all the rest in the port, you had to also begin to teach them about security starting day zero. How'd that go? It's been a challenge. People that there, they're for them, everything's worked and has always worked. And why do we need to change it? Port of Houston has been around for a long time. And for them, you know, tradition and the way things are done has always helped in getting cargo moved and for something to come in to change. And, and, and in some ways, they'll feel like it's impeding. It's a difficult thing to tackle. The chief operating officer, not up chief operating, chief um, port officer, what he does is, you know, he's like, I don't care what you do for information security, just don't impact my cargo moving. <laughs> you know, right. and I'm like, okay, yeah, I got it, noted. So, you know, and I come back, I'm like, well, everything I'm doing is going to improve your cargo movement. So, you know, <laughs> I'm helping. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, well, I mean, from their perspective, they don't want a, a roadblock anymore, whether it's a physical or a virtual one. And security is a bit of a, a new concept for, for some verticals and some organizations. But what typically happens, what typically happens is there's an event at some point that then requires the organization to become educated. I have lived this and you have as well. And, and the event is usually some sort of big incident, maybe a breach that then it sort of wakes everyone up. And that's, as I understand, a little bit of the taste of what, what the port had. And fortunate enough, you were there. Yeah, recently we, we had a, a cyber attack 
that um, utilize the zero day, that true zero day fashion. You know, there was nothing out there that said, hey, your software was vulnerable. And to add to it, you know, from what we've been told, we were probably the first, if not one of the very first ones to actually have the attack used against the port. So kind of gives me shivers because, you know, I wouldn't think that the port would be, you know, such a target. I know that we are a target for, you know, nation states. We're definitely a target for criminals. But to have uh, a zero day to be used against us was kind of eye-opening for myself as well as for the leadership. And working through an incident like that where, you know, the potential for shutting the port down could have been there. The potential for having to do disclosures, breach disclosures was all there. So... Fortunately, my background was an incident response and, uh, you know, came up as an analyst. You know, I was able to sit there and we, we had a good incident response plan, plan that we practiced. And uh, fortunately, we were able to go from within two, less than three hours, we had gone from the attack beginning to actually having it contained and within... 10 hours actually fully remediated. So we were told this was an APT that, you know, again, APT could be anything, but, you know, this is actually truly an APT and uh, that conducted the attack against us. And we're like, kind of feeling like dodging a bullet and that we caught this one with them so quickly. So that did raise a lot of eyes, you know, that, you know, APTs are willing to take attack a port like the Port of Houston. Well, I think it's, I have no superior knowledge or experience with this particular incident, but I can make, I'll, I will make some, I guess, analytical leaps on this one. I think on one hand, they probably researched the environment a little bit. They probably figured that you wouldn't catch it, that they wanted to test this O'Day and this vulnerability within the, the, the password management platform, this password keeper. I think that's an excellent thing to try to attack. Certainly, the theft of credentials is something we see often, often difficult to detect. But it's, it's interesting that this happened and that you caught it and, and were able to kind of clean it up. You said something that I think is important to call out. You don't have to name who you were working with, but it sounds like you were getting some information on the actor or actors. That's an important thing, I think, to engage outside help, government help early, no matter what vertical you're in. You said you had an IR plan. Was that part of it or did that happen just because you had done IR before? That was one of the first things I put together upon my arrival. You know, it's, you know, the other thing I've done in the past is, I, you know, I was a uh, firefighter and, you know, I know the value of a good plan when you're going in to fight a fire. You know, we do pre-planning of different buildings and we write these down in a book. So if you're sitting in the front seat, it doesn't make a difference who's sitting in the front seat of the fire engine. You know, they're able to go through and actually execute the plan. Uh, based on the knowledge that we already have. So we had a plan, we had it practiced. So people were not unfamiliar with how the whole thing worked. So the other thing I think is fascinating, again, you're in a pandemic, there's logistical problems. You have a O-Day that's being exploited and then caught, and it's related to shipping. Uh, I find that, that interesting. And from your conversation, 
I think you said it was, yeah, number six port and size, but number one in bulk cargo. So my mind goes a little bit wild to think, well, you know, is it, is it an organization that is interesting and in, interested in criminal behavior? Are they interested to know our capabilities related to the movement and transportation or transition from on a ship to freight on a truck? Are they looking to disrupt this, knowing that we're already kind of our backs against the wall? We don't need to explore that here, but I think it's your organization got educated on all that very quickly. Yeah, we did. That benefits you, though, right? I mean, so you you now have to sort of stand on top of that story, right? And people have to be saying like, oh, shit, like, listen to this. And a little bit of you has to be saying, I, I told you so, or, or yes, this could happen. I mean, is that, am I accurate or am I off? You're, you're accurate. I mean, cause one of the things that we do is, you know, within, you know, information security leadership, right. Is that we gel, you know, gen up our, our risk matrix, right. What is our risk and everything else. So interestingly enough, back in February, March, I had updated it, our risk matrix and, you know, this style or type of event was one of those items in my risk matrix. And they're like, oh, it can never happen. You know, you, like you said, I so wanted to say, I told you so, but I just kept my, right. <laughs> kept my lip closed and uh, just uh, say, well, we could chalk this one up as being legitimate. Yeah. I, I mean, having documentation like that, that you can reference, having something that you can point to that says, I told you so, is worth so much. And for those that listen that know me, why I'm emphasizing this so much, but we'll keep it on Chris, it can, you never want anyone to ever question, well, if something bad happens, was it, was, was your leader ignorant? Did they warn you and you just did nothing or were, or were they ignorant? They didn't know any better. And and they they were just sort of inert and did nothing, right? You need to document every way possible, whether it's an incident or a risk matrix matrix in this example, and have that out there. Because you don't want someone to come back on your program and say, well, you know what? They were just inert. They just weren't any good. But if it's documented and you've sent it an email, now it's discoverable. And that's where you want it to be. You know, it's got to be put together in the right way. And your lawyers might not like it, uh, but that's honestly, if you're doing good work and you have real concerns, document it and send it out. So I, I, that's my public service announcement for the day, <laughs> but it, it does, it does feel good. It's a bit vain, but it does feel good to say, I told you so. You're right. You know, and just, you know, coming away from that, from that day and, and then, you know, talking to the organization chief risk officer who is, you know, it's like, yeah, you were, you know, you were right. And. And then, you know, have leadership say, oh, maybe this guy actually knows what he's talking about is, you know, it's always an extra feather in the cap. And that that helps with the credibility, especially when you're starting to move forward and address other areas that are risk. No doubt, because then it's like, hey, you know what, this was and this is on the on the tip of the spear. This is an O-Day. Now, you still have to have the capabilities to identify the intrusion and respond, whether it's an O-Day or not. But it's still an O-Day. And that is on the more extreme realm of what you're likely to face. And so if this can happen, so can a lot of other things, I think is, is sort of the message. I, I got to ask you, Chris, was there anyone, this is kind of an unfair question, but I kind of, I really want to ask it. It falls into one of my own, kind of my thesis around these types of problems. 
Was there anyone in the company that you met because of the incident that you hadn't met before? Yeah, I mean, it's actually got to meet the, well, part of it was, was always been kind of locked down, but, but this, this kind of sped up me meeting with executive director and uh, chief operating officer, you know, and, and then also on top of that, outside of the company, the Coast Guard and everything else. So this really quickly right. elevated me with not only within my own organization, but with the maritime industry here in the Houston area. People are probably tired of hearing me say this stuff, Chris. But one of, one of my other things I often say is you never want to make an introduction in a crisis. Now, it's better than no introduction, but meeting someone that's very high up and important and there's now a security crisis, making that your introduction is hard. You have their attention. You just can't screw up. You're, you're under, you know, there's higher stakes. I don't know. Do you have a, a perspective or maybe just a, a point of levity on that related to your own experience? I guess I'm kind of fortunate in that all of this went down and we, it was done and over with quickly. Two hours, right? And I, that's when I knew something was wrong. And then we were fully recovered and, you know, and we're ready to be recovered within 10 hours. So this wasn't something that um, had long and dragged out. I mean, I was lunch when, when all this kicked off and done by 10 o'clock at night. So, <laughs> you know, I was able to go to sleep that night, but in my back of my mind, I'm still kind of doing the analysis of the event, but, you know, always, always going back and playing the what ifs you know, and, and everything else. But, but, you know, it was the good thing was it did help um, raise the awareness that Port of Houston within my organization, Port of Houston is subject to cyber attack by somebody that has money that could sit there and put together an O-Day because they're just, you know, these attackers are just like businesses. They have to have a return on investment. And if they figure that they're going to get, you know, something out of the Port of Houston, or they some way. I mean, it wasn't they were, you know, they weren't ne they weren't necessarily looking for you know our credentials. They were looking for something else. And so the the the, the password manager or reset manager was just the doorway for them to get in. You know, we stopped them at the reconnaissance phase. They never got anywhere. So it's just it's that whole thing is we did, we blew their entire return investment within two hours. And within two weeks, having the rest of the world notified of all the indicators and, and having the software patched by the manufacturer, it definitely, it's definitely something that, you know, you don't get to see much of and hear much of. And, I, you know, part of it, I think, is because, you know, organizations are afraid to be out there in the limelight. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to be in the limelight. All this was supposed to be anonymous. Um, we were providing all this information anonymously. Until, you know, somebody decided they wanted to make a statement that wasn't even related to my organization and made a statement about it. And so my point of view is, well, since uh, somebody has decided to give us some lemons, we'll go ahead and make some lemonade and, and turn this into a good news story. Well, I, I think one of my biggest complaints about our industry is we don't share the right information enough. And specifically, that means we're often happy to share boatloads of indicators and things, but the narrative around the failure or success is often left out. And it doesn't happen because generally lawyers or government officials are involved to typically lawyers 
to keep it quiet. So even if you're in a spot where you can share, as soon as you have a big enough incident, that all goes away. You're not sharing anymore. And I see it all the time. So then the, the very best learning exercises are sort of frozen. And then you might hear about it 10 years later. Uh, and that's way too late. And, and that's, if we don't educate ourselves on these things, we're just going to continue to fail. And I don't know if you've got a perspective on that, on, on the sharing of this. I mean, I know this was supposed to kind of been quiet and other things happened we won't go into, but. But I mean, I, my perspective is like, yeah, I, I agree. We need to be sharing. We need to be sharing the lessons learned and, and how to make things, you know, we're not going to get better if we don't do this in a collaborative environment. The part about being anonymous, that's, that's a good thing about, you know, the TLP system and everything else. You know, the information was out there, everything from how it happened to, you know, the lessons learned. All that was out there at a level that was, you know, releasable to just about everybody. The only thing that wasn't out there was my name. So basically, it's almost like a it was supposed to be redacted, and it wasn't. So, Chris, there is a value, though. I think at a human level, at a leadership level, and it's not necessarily just your name. It is going out and sharing. It's both a failure and a success. It's both that you, you don't want to have any incidents, but you're going to have them. And this is a rare story. It's, it, I think it's a, a positive thing for the Port of Houston. I think as a leader, it's a positive thing for you, both as individual experience and, and also sort of having to represent it, to tell the story, to get up and to give a perspective. It's super valuable. Uh, it leads to development in many, many ways. And so I'm glad you're, you're sharing this. I think more people need to an anonymized TLP is, uh, notice is great, but when you get up and tell it from your perspective, it's different. It carries more weight as a, you know, at a round table or at, in this scenario. One thing I will say, and I'm envious of this, is that, yeah, you, you found it and got to go to bed that <laughs> night. Yeah. That's a pretty rare or a fairly rare thing when a no day is involved and all the rest. But you've been there 18 months. How many times did you have to sort of... A, Put your time into this problem after that day, meaning you're explaining it to someone, you're dealing with an issue, there's a meeting to talk to a regulator. Like, what's the long tail of that, even though this was a 10 hour event? For Port of Houston, we're, you know, like I said, regulated under the Maritime Transportation Security Act. And so that meant Coast Guard got involved and they were here, a lot of questions. But the good thing is they came not to be like regulators. They came to be more like search and rescue and came out to see, hey, how can we help? What can we do? I had FBI here, same thing. And I think part of it was because it was such a odd event. I mean, initially this looked like potentially another solar wind style attack. So we're thinking, yes. oh no, you know, we, we're, we're at the forefront of another supply chain attack. And so that's what got FBI involved and CISA involved. So they came out and they were all offering assistance and uh, providing us with the help that we needed to sit there. Because there's with two people for an information security program, it's you know, a real small program. Right. So we definitely don't have the resources internally to be able to handle the amount of lift that was necessary to be able to get all this information together. I think my. My personal interaction and what you've described, especially the FBI, has actually been pretty good. You know, the, the hands-on help. There's one area in particular 
where they helped what we were working on a long time ago, where there's sort of a blind spot. They can sometimes put together things that you wouldn't be able to if you didn't have the access that they do. They were very helpful. It's still the reality. It can be kind of a pain in the rear end too, but I would encourage everyone to reach out. I'd encourage everyone to have a relationship with your local field agent before you have a crisis is what I'd really recommend. Definitely. Yeah. Fortunately for me, I was part of the InfraGuard, so I have a local agent that I would be able to reach out to and talk to. So, Is that who you called? Yeah. Well, not first, but yeah, I did call the that agent who put me in charge in touch with another agent that more specialized in cyber. So, you know, the particular right. agents, you know, typically like InfraGuard, that's a good portion of what they do is just the InfraGuard piece of it. So they'll put you over somebody that, you know, knows the cyber side a lot better. Chris, a point you made, and I, I really like this, it's, it's a little bit, it sounds silly, but I think it's very true. You kind of fight two battles. You fight one against the adversary, and I and these are my words, but I think we we talked a bit about this. And you 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 fight against the adversary, and you fight against what I call organizational indifference. Yes, you had an event that helped with the second one. What's the relationship between those two things, or how would you describe this battle or this this insider threat category? The the indifference of the insiders. Just advice to someone who's out there who's struggling, who's maybe a new CISO or new director. How do you break those two down? And, and do you need to have a major incident before the second one gets better? So, yeah, there's, like you mentioned, there's that always that struggle. You're not always just fighting the battle against your, your cyber actors that are out there trying to cause a headache for you on your day-to-day job. But you also have the internal battles that you have to have. And it's politics within the organization, and it's people, you know, they're protecting their portion of the organization. And, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, like, you know, how the uh, the chief board officers, like, you know, do not, you know, do anything that's going to break us moving cargo. So part of it is, you know, it's fear. They don't know. And you, we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. It's the fear of what they don't know about cybersecurity, you know, being the first one to come in the door. But even when you're not the first one to come in the door, you know, you still have to be able to speak in a language that they understand. In my case, the port is very well versed on physical security. It's something that they know. Safety is something that they know. And so you put in parallel descriptions of what I want to do for cybersecurity and how it is similar to what they already know within physical realm. It's drawing those parallels that uh, may ease their, you know, their apprehension towards making changes. So it's really about putting them at ease. If you could do that, right. the battles will go down, and then they get a little bit clearer of what your vision is. Because when you come in there and you start talking cyber, and they're going to be like eyes rolled into the back of the heads, and they're looking for the next pot of coffee and the glazed donut. And they're just going to let you keep talking. And then when you're done talking, they say, oh, thank you very much. And that's as far as it gets. So you got to be able to put it in terms they know. And I would imagine, I don't know much about this vertical, but I would imagine a lot of it is still certainly very mechanical and not networked, but it's probably becoming more so networked and IoT devices and different monitoring that's done, whether it's 
everything from RFID to who knows what. I, I don't know what I don't know, but there's there's more of that that's living in your environment every day. And if it doesn't go managed, it's it's going to go bad fast. If there's not good hygiene and visibility and some sort of way to analyze all of this, it's it's going to slide sideways. Very true. And, and it, it grows every day. I mean, it's it's already there and it's huge. It's like, you know, any large manufacturing organization. If you go like to Ford where you have robots making cars, you know, or Toyota or any of these other man- auto manufacturers, things like that, that's, that's happening at the port. Maybe not so much robotic wise, but every crane, every device out there has some sort of chips in it. I remember working in one of the other organizations, you know, we had pallet lift trucks, you know, the kind that just sit there and you pumped up by hand. Those had computers in them. Those were IoT. Oh, yeah. And, and the reason being was, is how do you, you know, that's how they detect when, you know, the person driving that actually ran that carton of whatever into a wall or a pole or something like that. And it recorded all that. So, right. It's all over the place now. So, I think we should, you might not like this, but I think we should give thanks to uh, your colleagues at San Diego. And uh, you said Long Beach was the other port. Were those the two? Am I correct there? Yep. Uh, Robert Renzulli and Eddie Galang, they both, uh, they did a lot to help me out in getting prepared for this position. My thanks goes out to them as well, if uh, maybe they listen. And then in that vein, mentioning your friends that helped you with this, uh, prepare for this new position. I want to also state that I learned you also have a podcast. I believe it's a, a video show from what I saw from the link you sent. I want to give that a shout out. What's that called? Maritime Security Talk. It's five of us that are in the Houston area that uh, get together periodically and sit down and have an, a censored but not so censored talk. <laughs> you know, we're, I mean, we're sitting there, we're drinking, we're having, you know, bourbon. A couple of us might be smoking cigars while we're talking. And we're just talking maritime security. It could be physical, it could be cyber. You know, it, you know it's whatever the topic of the day is. And we, we try to get together every couple of weeks and, and uh, you know, talk shop. So for those in the vertical, those that are interested in, in learning more or connecting with Chris, I'll put that in the show notes and we'll, we'll link to that. So uh, you, or you can search for it. That will be out there for you as well. Chris, I want to thank you again for for being on the show and i'm going to close on a question that you've already been asked last time you were on the show but uh you've got a new perspective now and and uh, that is pursuant to the name of the show chris what does being a a new uh new ciso mean to you doing your homework get to know those that you're working with whether they're working for you or are your peers or those senior to you get to know them and be willing to educate, especially if you're going into an organization that has not somebody lead their information security program and do that. I think you'll be on the road to success, being a successful CISO at that organization. And have a good IR plan. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Always helps. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for your time. Have a great one, bud. Thank you. Appreciate coming back. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.